Pete, do you always record your podcasts in people's hotel rooms? No. No? The, the threat of you doing this in a towel also was not <laughs> something that made me want to do this in your hotel room. Well, I, I am on the bed, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm you... glad this isn't being videotaped. <laughs> <laughs> we've, um, we've spent a lot of time in hotels together over the years. Vacation. Uh, <laughs> well, that, yeah, I, uh, I, I, didn't know, you know, I know where I, you were going with that. Well, not where the audience <laughs> hoped. <laughs> Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. Before we get started, I want to remind you all that you can actually be a part of the show. We want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. Have we made you a lifelong customer, or do you have a bone to pick? Or maybe you just returned a pair of 10-year-old pants to Nordstrom, and you can't believe we took that back. Give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may end up on a future episode of the Nordy Pod. So get ready. Here's the number. 206-594-0526. And if you leave me your number, I may even call you back. You can also send me an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com to be a part of the conversation. Okay, let's get on with the show. For this episode, we're headed over to Austin, Texas for one of Nordstrom's State of the Company meetings. And that's where we go in and we review the year, we talk about our goals for the upcoming year, and probably most importantly, we get a lot of great constructive feedback from our people. What is our number one goal? Improve service! All right, we're going to improve service starting today, right? In addition to my Nordstrom duties, while I was in Austin, I sat down with a good friend after getting the unique opportunity to view a premiere showing of his latest film, Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off. I'm excited to introduce you to documentary filmmaker and world-famous photographer and also my good friend, Sam Jones. Sam Jones and I have been close friends for quite some time now, but we're often pleasantly reminded of just how different our lives really are. While I grew up playing sports and working in the family business during the summers, I eventually found my way into the family business as my profession. Sam followed more creative pursuits, fabricating his entire career from scratch. Starting as a freelance photographer for the Associated Press, Sam gradually leveraged his work up the entertainment ladder conning A-list actors into helping him expand his portfolio and hustling his way into the offices of big-name magazines. His impressive body of work has been featured in the likes of Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, GQ, and movie posters plastered on billboards across the world. He's produced and directed multiple feature-length documentary films and even created his own TV show that ran over 200 episodes spanning 12 seasons. To this day, Sam stands apart from a majority of industry filmmakers for his willingness to invest in his projects from his own bank account, rather than waiting for a studio to give him a shot, resulting in more freedom to create extremely personal stories and make more money doing it. If you haven't run into his work yet, I'm certain after this conversation you're going to want to go on a Sam Jones binge. Just go on to Google and type in Sam Jones photographer and movie maker and you'll see it all there. So as Sam would say... Pull up a chair and listen in. All right, so we're here in Austin, and you know, congratulations on your movie premiere yesterday. It was great. You know, Thank the you. Tony Hawk until the wheels fall off. Yeah, Tony Hawk documentary, and it was so much fun for me to be there. I mean, it's not really my world and everything, but you know, you and I have been friends for such a long time, and to see you actually do your thing was great. I was proud of you and how it all went. And I mean, I'm interested just on your just general visceral reaction, how that all went for you yesterday. Well, thank you. I, uh, 
I know you meant to say that it, it's coming on HBO <laughs> April 5th. Yeah, yeah. And the great thing about this documentary, it'll be on HBO starting April 5th. That's right. No, I, I'll tell you, I've had some film festival experience, but it was exciting to come here and see all these people with their badges and they're all excited to see films. And this is such a personal film to me. It's a world that I know so well. I grew up a skateboarder and I've spent the last few years with Tony Hawk making this and he was a hero of mine. So to come to Austin and to do this in front of a live audience and have them laugh at the right places and be silent at the right places and gasp at the right <laughs> places. When you get to do something like that, it makes you all the more excited to make stuff because it's, it's so fun to make these things and then to go share them with people. So that, does it kind of validate the whole thing right yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. And I think the whole idea that everything's virtual and people only watch films in their house on their iPads or TVs, you lose the community of, of it a little bit. And so festivals are great for that. For the, like, oh, there's a bunch of people here and they all love films. That's fun to be around. And I get to meet people that I look up to. And So what people that were kind of pivotal to that movie, whether it's you know soundtrack or actually in it, had never seen it before? Well, pretty much nobody had seen it. I mean, Rodney Mullen is a huge character in the movie. He's Tony's best friend, and he's a large part of the movie. And he had never seen the film. So he, he was experiencing it in real time. So where was Rodney sitting? And I saw when well, he came up and asked a question, but where was he sitting? Well, that's the thing. I asked Tony the same thing. I said, where's Rodney? And Tony said, I don't know. And then the movie started playing, and Rodney was laughing the loudest. And he has a very distinctive laugh. And after the first laugh, we looked at each other, and Tony said, oh, now we know who Rodney is. <laughs> So I kind of want to go backwards a little bit, then we'll talk a bit more about the Tony Hawk movie. But there's been a really busy like year or two for you, even like during COVID times. Talk a little bit about you know some of the interesting things you've been working on because you know even just getting a chance to sit down and talk to you like this, and we're friends, and everything. It's been hard to book. I mean, you're you've been busy. It's been an unusually busy time leading up to this festival, which is great and also sort of unexpected for me because when the pandemic hit. I was doing this show off camera. It was my interview show. It was a television show and a podcast. So that, and yeah, that's, that was on DirecTV. It was on right. DirecTV, and we had done about 219 episodes of it. And the pandemic came around right around the time that that whole ecosystem of DirecTV changed and got sold. But between that and the pandemic, and we couldn't shoot the shows, the show just sort of ended. And I kind of realized, like, oh, maybe it's time to move on. And it was very scary. I had a lot of upheaval, as you know, a lot of upheaval in my family life at that point. And then all of a sudden I didn't have a job and I was sitting at home and the pandemic hit and was a little bit out of sorts. I had a documentary half filmed about this guy, Jason Isbell. Right. It's a film about a Nashville musician. Right. And we were in the studio with him while he's making his record. And all of a sudden we couldn't go back and finish it. We had sort of sold the Tony Hawk movie, but the deal wasn't signed yet. And by the way, like, so how long did it take you to make that Tony Hawk movie from conceiving the idea, approaching yeah. Tony to actually making the whole thing? Well, it took about a year to make the deal and to take it around town to find in investors. And when COVID hit, it sort of put a hold on that progress as well. And so really, I was sitting at home going, how am I going to make these movies? How am I going to finish Jason? How am I going to start Tony? And I called my producing partner, who is Mark Duplass. And he said, let's just do it. Let's just like pay for it ourselves. Let's just start it. We'll figure it out. And yeah, so I just said yesterday in the interview that you guys went punk rock style and just DIY did it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I put the cameras I own in the back of my truck and I drove down to Tony's house and we decided to do interviews outdoors so we could do them during COVID. And we went to Tony's backyard and, and I, I started interviewing him and we started collecting archival footage. So that was footage. what, like two years ago? Well, I take that back. We had done one scene before the pandemic with his mom. His mom was on her last leg. She was in a nursing home in the final stages of Alzheimer's and dementia. That was a really touching scene, by the way. You know, this movie's about Tony Hawk and this whole culture around skating and all this stuff. But the way you kind of humanized him and maybe told a story that people would know is, I mean, him being there in the rest home talking to his mother. I mean, you know, that was that was quite a moment. You know, it's funny when we edited the film, that was my main thing. I said, I want to start with an unexpected scene that people don't get to see of Tony. And then I want to go straight into the nursing home. And by the time those two scenes are done, people will have no 
preconceived notions that this is a skate film. It, it will throw off the balance and it'll let me tell the story I wanted to tell because I think people go into a skate film about Tony Hawk and they think they think they know what kind of film they're going in to see. And that was such a touching scene. And we didn't really know if we would use it. I just did it because Tony said his mom was about to die. And I said, could I go on a visit with you and bring a camera? And I thought he'd say no, but he yeah. said, sure, come along. And yeah, that was amazing. So uh, the Tony Hawk film took almost four years from when he said yes to us sitting here today. And while I was doing that, I realized I could also finish the Jason film by sending cameras to Jason Isbell and teaching him over Zoom how to use the film cameras. (laughs) He filmed himself? So the second half of the (laughs) Jason documentary was made remotely. It, It was sort of this adjustment during COVID to first realize I can't do things in a normal way. And so I just kind of decided I was going to do the best I could with the circumstances, which is sort of my philosophy, you know, the way I've run my life anyway, is I'm just going to make it work. Yeah, that's kind of brings to mind a question for me, like just from a business point of view. So, I mean, there's no funding. You you had to put your own money in to make this up in the hopes that you'd be able to sell it. Yeah, no, I you know, it's funny. There's always a risk versus reward situation in independent filmmaking. And, and the safe route, of course, is to go make a fancy pitch and get in front of some executives and see if you can get people to invest in your movie. And then maybe what? You lose creative control because you've kind of sold it off to someone that's or, now got or, authority? Or, yes. Or maybe you take the money, but it's not all the money that you thought it, you could get when you sold it, but it's enough to make your film. So you make a deal without knowing what you have. And then the more high-risk way is to say... I'm going to make this thing exactly how I want it and figure out a way to pay for it. And then I'll own so much more of it on the back end. And that's sort of the Duplass way of doing things as well. They've taken risks on themselves. And I think that's the way you make personal docs the best way is you make them independently. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. And it's such a scary thing to be a creative and to find the money and to believe in yourself enough to say, no, I'll invest in myself. And I think the more you do that and it works out, the more empowered you are to do it. And, and ultimately what the result is, I think, is more independent and more personal projects. But what you're describing is the real balancing act, right? So, I mean, this is your business. It's your thing. So you're not only the creative person, you got to be the salesperson and the business person or whatever. All those yep, things exactly, that go into because yeah. it's you. I mean, it's Sam Jones. Wait, is it Sam Jones Productions, Sam Jones Pictures? What, what's I mean, your business called I, now? Well, I've all, <laughs> my, my production company is Beware Doll, which is just a name. But, uh, you know, it's just me. And yeah. yet you're right. I go in a room and, and I think when people are thinking of investing or when they're thinking of buying the thing that I've made, I'm a big part of that. And they have to sort of like what I'm doing and like my take on things and, and be is able to trust me. Is that easier now and, because you've been doing this for a while and people know who you are? I mean, you're, they're not going, who's Sam Jones? That's helpful, for sure. But I always feel like every new project, it's almost like you've lost your job and you have to go get a new one. That's the hardest thing about this <laughs> life. stressful. Is, is, you know, it's, it's like, oh, you're only as good as your last thing. And once that thing is six months to a year old, you know, it seems way in the rearview mirror. Uh, and yes, it does. It, it obviously helps to establish yourself. But one of my challenges is that I'm always doing things that are so different that it seems like I sort of have to start at the bottom rung all over again. Like when I started the television show, I had to convince people that I could be the role of a host. So on that one, did you go get the deal before you started making no, episodes? I'm, or just, did you have to make some episodes to sell that to I people? made 12 episodes before I sold it. And we put on them out for free on the internet. For, oh, I didn't yes. know that. And luckily, DirecTV saw a few episodes and decided to make us a deal. And which was great because we owned 100% of it. So the deal we made was a licensing deal. Whereas if I had gone in and pitched the show, right. they would have owned it. And I would have been their employee. Right. And that's the thing I like. I like the creative freedom that comes with that independence. I'd much rather make something and license it than I would entering a partnership where I become sort of a salaried or contracted employee of a larger entity. Okay. So like going back to this, this last couple of years, so you had that Jason Isbell project and you've got the Tony Hawk movie. And you've done some other stuff, too. Like, you know, that whole Ted Lasso yes. episode, did that was really exciting. And that was something that I feel so fortunate. And, and, and that Ted Lasso experience was actually created during the pandemic as well. And what had happened was a number of years ago, I had directed an episode of Cougar Town because Krista Lawrence, who was in the show and is married to Bill Lawrence, who created the show, 
They've been lovely supporters of my work for a long time. They like what I do. And early on, when I didn't have any experience directing television, she fought for me to come direct. So an that was your first television. Of, it was my show? first show. Yes. And that was what? When was that? It was 2014. Okay. And I went and did it, and I had a great time. And then I went off and did my show, and so did it was, the off camera show. I went off yeah. and did off camera. And I was my time was pretty booked up because of it, and so I didn't really pursue that work. And then the pandemic came around. And Bill Lawrence and I live not too far from each other. And we started mountain biking three times a week because we didn't have anything to do. So we were, <laughs> we were trying to get exercise and mountain bike. And, and he had started Ted Lasso. And he goes, you should really direct one of these things. And Jason would love for you to do it. And so would I. And Yeah, so you know Jason from, what, you did I, a music video with him. You've done, did you off camera with I, him? You know, I met him. I did a photo shoot with him for We're the Millers. But funny enough, when I met him, he was a giant fan of my Wilco documentary, but he didn't know I had made it. Really? And halfway through the shoot, Jason said, oh, wait, are you that Sam Jones that did the Wilco movie? And I said, yes. And then he was just, he had a hundred questions. He loved that movie so much. So we, <laughs> nice. we became sort of text friends. And then, and then I cast him in a music video and we became, fr- and then he Which, came. Which, by the way, I got to say, that's a funny video. That Mumford and Sons oh, video. Yeah. If people haven't seen that. What's the name of that song? You gotta go check that one. Hopeless out. Wanderer. Oh my and, god! Uh, that's funny. It, yeah, we we cast Jason, Ed Helms, Will Forte, and Jason Bateman to play the four members of the band. And I knew those guys were gonna bring all kinds of crazy improv comedy to it. But yeah, he had me tapped in his mind for an episode of Ted Lasso. So that was season two, episode nine. What? Episode, episode nine. nine. Yeah, and 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 I was a big fan of the show. So imagine being a fan of the show, and then you go over there and you get to meet all these people in real life and work with them. And I, I loved. It. I, I had a great experience. Well, you know, kind of working current back. I mean, you've done some pretty high-profile things. I mean, that, that Ted Lasso episode obviously is exciting. I'm in this documentary that's coming out to me on HBO. I mean, that's, that's a high-profile thing. I kind of want to understand from you, like, how this whole journey began. I mean, did you envision yourself at 21 years old being a movie director? I'm just curious, like, what your idea was in your mind and kind of the muse you were chasing, you know, throughout your career. Well, one thing I'm sure of, even as a kid, was I was going to do something creative with my life and I was going to figure out how to not have a real job. And I was a skateboarder that for a while I thought, well, I could be a professional skateboarder. And then I was in a band and I thought, I'm going to make records and go on tour. And and then I discovered photography and I was like, well, this is a pretty good way to earn a living while trying to be either a skateboarder or a musician and it's <laughs> and still kind job. of work for yourself and i mean you didn't myself. have to go work for whatever yeah you know i i wasn't a great employee <laughs> <laughs> okay now see now that begs the question it's like well tell me about some of your I, teenage jobs where you you knew well, you were not a good employee what I, happened i was a fry cook for about a month at taco bell and that was terrible <laughs> i had a short stint at kentucky fried chicken and that so you was, took your fry skills to yeah to, to Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was awful. I, I was a cabinet maker for a while. I hated that because it was too close to... My dad was a big woodworker and he was so good at it that I felt like I was just going to always be the second best woodworker in my family. and uh, <laughs> That didn't last very long. I, I mean, I worked at a yogurt shop for a little bit, which, you know, I think I ate more than I made in profits. And, <laughs> and, and the minute I sort of found a way to get paid for taking a picture that was it for me I was, yeah that which and I, I know the story because you know again we've known each other a long time but your first foray into professional photography I, I want to hear that story if you want to count the very first time I got officially paid I got on my college newspaper staff and I think I actually got paid for that like they so it wasn't just for credits you weren't they paid students cre- because it was a daily paper so I uh. think it was like $250 a month that you got for being on the <laughs> school newspaper staff yeah. But when I was in college, the Associated Press was a known thing among photojournalism students. And it was, hey, if you get a really interesting picture, they might buy it. And that happened. I was shooting a a basketball tournament, a Big West basketball tournament, because my school, Cal State Fullerton, was playing the UNLV Running Rebels, coached by Jerry Tarkanian. And Jerry Tarkanian had his best friend there. And halfway through the game, the guy has a heart attack. 
To, uh, to what happened? Did, I mean, you saw the split. Did he just like... He keeled, keeled over, over? And, and they stopped the game and the paramedics came in and they put him on oxygen and on the stretcher and they rolled him out. And, and you, know, you were like... I took a picture of it and <laughs> didn't think much of it. And then I went home. I was living at home at the time, going to college. And I sat up in bed and I was like, oh, the Associated Press, I, I should try it. <laughs> uh, so I called and I said, hey, I got this picture of... And they said, oh, we'll take your number, call you back if we... So you told them what the picture was of? And... Yeah, and they took my number, and then I went to bed. And then an hour or two later, my dad comes in, very angry at me, because the phone has rung by his this bed. Is, these and... are pre-cell phone days, yeah. so it's the family phone. It's is the ringing. family phone, and he, there's a phone call from you, from someone, and you tell them not to call this late. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was the night editor at the Associated Press, and he said, we, we want the picture. And so I had to drive up to downtown L.A., which was... You know, 45 minutes away and develop at, my film. At like midnight. At midnight. Or... And I had to develop my film and find the picture. And I didn't know which role it was on. I brought like 10 rolls in. And I, I kept processing two rolls at a time. This is the old days when we had to go into a dark room. And, and you had to do it yourself. They said, And I had to do it myself. And... and I'd bring these rolls out. It took me four tries to find the role that was on. And so I printed the picture. I sold it to them. I don't know. I made 40 bucks or something like that. But the interesting thing was... <laughs> As I was leaving the office, the editor said, hey, you, because you, he had to go through all my films, so he had to look at all my basketball pictures. So and, you're just taking action shots like underneath yeah, the Yeah, and then I just spun around, took a picture of the yeah. whole heart attack business, and the editor said, you take you know better basketball pictures than a lot of our staff photographers. Would you like to do some freelance work for us? And I was like, yeah. And, and so the, the guy said, get yourself a pager. And he, he handed me a brick of film. He gave me free film. I was like, whoa, I'm in the big time now. I'm getting free film. And so that was my first professional gig. At what point did like the whole movie thing come in? And, and then what you really became known for was kind of a, cele- a celebrity photographer, essentially. So how did that? Yeah, I, well, I, the news thing, I didn't love. I didn't love being uh, in any situation where I wasn't wanted. I remember being at Hank Gather's funeral. Yeah, a basketball player, yeah. And Hank Gather's had collapsed on the court at Loyola Marymount, and it was a big deal in L.A. because this was a beloved basketball yeah. player, and he died suddenly. And I got sent to cover the funeral, and I remember they didn't allow photographers inside, so all the photographers were waiting outside, and when his mom came out, just grieving and in shock and in a horrible way, all these photographers muscled forward and... We're trying to get a picture of her and saying, you know, Mrs. Gathers, Mrs. Gathers. And I stood back. I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, I feel gross doing that. And I came back to the Associated Press and I, I actually got in trouble. Like, why like, didn't they you were get like, the picture? Why don't you have this picture? Like, they would always look at the L.A. Times the next day or, or the Orange County Register uh-huh. and, and say, well, why didn't you get that shot? And that's when I it was, the writing was on the wall. I was like, this isn't really me. Like, I like shooting. Like, it was fun to go to Laker games and sit on the floor and. That was great. Or, or go to Dodger games. I loved doing that. I loved shooting concerts. I shot Nirvana for the Associated Press. I shot Elton John at Dodger Stadium and I, all the sports teams. And But I really didn't like the news thing, and I did not like being where people didn't want me. So I started leaning towards portraits. And I really liked Irving Penn, Richard Avedon, and Annie Leibovitz. And I would buy Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair. And I think what I was seeing was those productions – they were so elaborate, they were like movie sets. You know, Annie Lee Woods's pictures were like movie sets. Right. And she would have props and locations and special effects and costume design and, and set builds. And I was really drawn to that. So I, I started really pushing for that and had some lucky breaks that led me to shoot a lot of actors. And So, like, what was your first big break there well, doing I, a celebrity I, photo? I got some jobs on film sets being the still photographer. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is, this is great. I love movies and I love photography. This is the job for me. And I found out it's just one more place where the photographer is not really wanted. <laughs> it's like you weren't embraced. The last thing the assistant director and the DP and the actors want is to have to do one more thing when they're already behind and trying to make their day. And it's like, everyone stop for a minute so I can pop in and take my pictures. And, but what happened was I used that as sort of a film school and the films I did, there was some decent name actors in them like James Earl Jones and Tim Robbins and John Cusack and Susan Sarandon. And so what I would do is I would lie to these actors and say, Oh, you know, at some point during the film, I have to make a portrait of you. 
studio wants it. So you just kind of did that on your own? Like, I did. And, and as an opportunistic is, thing? Yes, but the thing is, actors sit around a lot, and I would, I would sit around and chat with them, and I learned the value of sort of ingratiating myself. And so everyone happily complied. And, and so what I would do is when I got to an interesting location... And, you know, it was John Cusack's day. And he, you know, he's sitting around waiting for the set to be lit. So I would just be ready and I'd wait till the time. And I'd say, hey, John, could we knock that photo out for the studio now? And they'd say, okay. And so I made a portfolio of portraits that looked like magazine shoots. And I took that portfolio to New York with me. And I went to all the magazines that I admired, like Esquire and GQ and Time and Vanity Fair and Entertainment Weekly and I remember one of the things I would do is they would have portfolio drop-off day and you're supposed to drop your portfolio off and leave it and then you come back later and pick it up and supposedly the photo editor would have reviewed your portfolio. And I'd go in these offices when I did get an in-person meeting and I'd see a pile of portfolios in the corner. I'm like, no one's looking at those. They're getting (laughs) dropped off and they're getting picked up. These people are too busy. So I started saying that I'm sorry I can't leave my portfolio because... I'm only in New York for a couple of days and I only have one copy of it. So can I just meet you in person for even 10 minutes? And they said, okay. And whoever said, okay, I'd go visit. And that's the way I started getting jobs. The first person to take a chance on me was Entertainment Weekly. They gave me a job, a small one at first, and, and then a little bigger one, a little bigger one. And they gave me my first uh, magazine cover as well. So who was that subject? The first magazine cover was the cast of The Drew Carey Show. All right. And, uh, <laughs> and I went overboard trying to make it as big as an Annie Lee Wood The most shoot epic picture of all yes. time. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I think by nature I'm sort of a hustler that always was compensating for what I thought were my shortcomings by working very hard or going above and beyond the limit. I remember I did a picture of Chris Rock once and he's shooting himself in the air with a fire hose. And it was a really elaborate picture. You know, we had to use a, a crane and a special effects harness that he has to wear. And we had to close the street and get the fire department. And we had a that dog. picture's in your book. I'm that, not familiar with that, that picture. That picture's in my book. Well, Vanity Fair was not going to pay for it. Because when I put the whole budget together, I think it was $19,000 at the time, which yeah. in 1994, that was a lot of money yeah. for a shoot. And I made a decision then, I'll just I'll pay for what they want. Because I just knew it was going to be a good picture. Yeah. And I saw it in my head. I was like, I'm making this picture. And that was a huge lesson for me that even relates to the Tony Hawk film, was that if you can see something clearly and you know that you have a unique take on it, don't wait for someone to give you the money. Like Invest in it and it will pay off. And that was a huge early lesson for that because once I did that picture, I was flooded with work. I remember that year I got invited to the Vanity Fair party and I met Annie Leibovitz there. And I came up and I was very, I was very uh, shy and I, I felt like, oh, I'm going to be bugging. I bet she gets approached by photographers all the time. I just came up and I said, oh, hey, I'm Sam Jones. I'm a big admirer of your work. And she goes, your Chris Rock picture was fucking great. Really? Yes. Oh, and that's, so, she, that's so cool. She took a minute to tell me how cool she thought it was. And that was a big deal for me, you know? And, and that was also a lesson of, oh, if you do really good work, you get into a club that people don't get into otherwise. So that was kind of the gateway to that. Because that's about the time I met you. I mean, you were just starting to have... A little bit of success. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you, I think you'd had a few magazine covers. So I, you're a pretty humble guy. You usually don't rattle stuff up. But I mean, you've had some big ones. I mean, you had that Bono one on yeah. Rolling Stone. You had Barack Obama. And then you had... Like Oprah Winfrey. I mean, talk about some of your like your big breaks that really happened for you at, around those years. Yeah, you know, uh, the Rolling Stone covers were huge. I've always been a giant Bob Dylan fan, and I finally got to photograph him for two different covers of Rolling Stone in Spain and in Paris, and those were huge. I photographed Bono first for the cover of Time magazine, and then for the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. I did U2 for the cover of Rolling Stone. Barack Obama for Rolling Stone. And then I did some Vanity Fair covers like Robert Downey, and John Hamm, and Bradley Cooper, and a lot of GQ and were those covers. Lu- were those and, lucrative things? Like, you get the cover? Was like- yeah, they were pretty good in that world. Uh, the most lucrative version of that in my world was a movie poster. Okay, that, Those were like the gigs that were coveted because... What you're getting paid for is they're buying the rights to put them on billboards all over the world. And so you were doing a bunch of An those, image too. like that. And I, and I did a fair number of those, all the hangover posters, and right. those were good gigs. And those led directly from the magazine covers because once you show that you can photograph these incredibly famous people, 
that sort of a skill in itself to be trusted by a publicist and a big star. And that was really helpful to to be able to do that and then be considered for the movies that those people would then do. Yeah, think about it. Little did you know at that time probably that you're getting to know these different people and them learning to trust you became the opportunity with off-camera, right? So you could approach these different people to do an interview, show with them. This was later on, and they would do it because... That's they knew true. you and they trusted you. That's true. And it, it's an interesting thing because I think having your picture taken is a very hard thing to do. And it's, it's not comfortable. It's like going to the dentist. <laughs> and it's not until you're photographed that you really understand that. One of the things I always tell photographers when they say, give me some advice, I say, go be the subject of a photo shoot so you can find out what it looks from the, like from the other side. And so, yeah, when I started off camera, I was able to reach out to a few people that I had develop relationships with over the years and basically they did me a favor they're like yeah i'll I'll come in and sit and chat with you (laughs) like this will be this will be different than what you normally do and but the thing that most of those people didn't know is that i had already made a few documentaries at that point and i had made a ton of commercials that were documentary based so i'd done a whole lot of interviewing like when I did the Wilco film in 2000. But that, okay, so I, yeah, I want to ask yeah. about that. So the Wilco film, so that, that was that your first real kind of directorial documentary? Absolutely, thing? yeah. I had no idea how to make a movie, and I had made one commercial, and I just wanted to make a music documentary. So you, you're a Wilco fan? Like, a okay, Wilco fan. I want to make a documentary about these guys. I literally wrote a letter. I sat, I woke up one morning early. And I'm like, I'm getting this thing off the ground. And I wrote a three-page letter. I didn't even send it to the right person. I sent it to like their publicist at Reprise Records who forwarded it to the manager who gave it to Jeff Tweedy. Well, it actually made, well that's good that it actually went that it, far. It made it there. And the interesting thing to me is that I never in a million years would think they knew who I was. But the manager looked me up and said to Jeff, this isn't just some Wilco fan. This guy is like photographing for all these magazines. Like, it's not like a fan wanted to hang out with you guys and tour it. He seems more serious. Maybe we should have dinner with him or something. And so it was, it was like a game of chicken. They said, they said, (laughs) Oh, why don't you fly out and meet Jeff? And I'm like, I don't even know what you do when you sit down and pitch someone a documentary. I didn't know anything. And you had no partner or anything. It's just, I had no partner. Well, at first I had no partner. It should be said that once they said, okay, let's try it. Then I went to my commercial production company partner, this guy, Peter Abraham. And I said, I, w- I want to make this thing. Will you partner up with me on it? And he said, well, you can use the resources of this company, but I'm not going to put money in. And I said, okay, that's fine. Cause you can find me people that, you know, he had the experience I didn't have to find crews in different cities and to, to rent equipment. And, and they had an insurance rider with some rental houses so I could get gear. And so I paid for it. And it cost me almost $175,000 before we got some money from other people. Of your own money? Of my own money. And I just went out and started. And it like, was, did you have to go out and take loans and stuff, or were you prepared to do this? It wiped out my savings at the time. Yeah. And it was total risk. But I was doing it because I thought it was so cool. Like, I did like the band a lot, and I did so want to be a filmmaker. I just didn't think anyone was going to give me an opportunity. And I didn't think I could go in and sell anybody on being an investor. So this seemed to me like the best option. And it was like film school. You know, I never spent any money on college. I went to a state college. So it was an investment. And that's how I justified it in my head. And again, it was one of those things where no one had heard of Wilco at the time. They were yeah, they a were, tiny but, band. But they were, they were a popular indie band. Yeah, they were. I mean, people like you and me knew about them. Uh, you and I, I think, always think that bands that get a great <laughs> review or we're into are bigger than they are. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. It's funny. I got a little nervous halfway through making it because I would ask everyone. You know, I'd, I'd go into a restaurant and I'd ask the person serving me, have you heard of Wilco? And it was just no's across no. the board. It was like <laughs> 12 no's to one yes or oh. something. And, but it was such a great lesson to make that thing and then get it sold. And, and it was so much harder to make films. The barrier to making films was so much higher because you were shooting film. So it was very expensive just to be able to get enough footage together to, to make a feature-length film. And not that many people were doing it, and they weren't making music docs. But that was a time so where like music videos were a big deal. So yes. Had you done some of that? Had you ever done music videos? I, or? I hadn't made a music video then. I don't think just made one commercial and the commercial I made was, you know, somebody who I'd done a, some photography for and they, and they said, have you ever directed commercials? 
And I said, yes. <laughs> well, my, my career is based on lies and <laughs> stretching the truth, telling people everything's going to be okay. And, well, but you know what's but amazing? I mean, that was successful. And if you kind of look at any critical list of best music, rock documentaries of all time, that Wilco movie is always on it. And it's amazing how many people I've met over the years. If I say, oh, you know, my buddy Sam Jones... He directed the Wilco movie. That's the one thing everyone go, really? Well, Particularly you, you music, hang around musicians. a lot of music people, but, yeah. But still, I mean, it's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. I know who that is. And uh, first of all, it turned out awesome. I'm, I, I'm assuming you're, you, you knew in the moment, like, this is going to be pretty great. It turned out really awesome. Yeah. Or did you, were you uncertain of yourself? I was uncertain there? because I, I just think that you don't know what someone's reaction is going to be. I mean, I liked it. The editor and I, we liked it and we watched it and we thought it was pretty good story but honestly we had no idea what the reaction was going to be and that so was did you do you like apply to a film festival how what was your first you, reaction where you knew something was happening there? you know what was interesting is that we got hooked up with this guy named john vanka who ran a company at the time called cowboy pictures and i think my partner peter and uh, knew this guy who was interested in distributing it as a dvd but wanted to get a theatrical release because i wanted a theatrical release and they reached out to this company, Cowboy. And so this guy, John Vanko, came to our edit suite when the film was not even done and showed it to him. And he basically made an offer on the spot. And the offer sucked. I mean, <laughs> looking back, you know, the offer was, we will get this in theaters across the country and we will pay to put it in the theaters. But we're not going to pay you anything. But I was just so thrilled that this company had a way to put it in theaters. I just I just wanted people to see this film and I, and I didn't expect to make money anyway. So... We made this theatrical deal before the film was even done. So we did go to a couple film festivals. We went to Stockholm, we went to London, and we went to L.A., but the film was already sold when we went there. So it Had it been in the theater yet? Or when was the first time anyone ever been saw in it? Was that at a film festival? It was at a film festival. And the interesting thing was, if I could go back in time, the one thing I would change is I would have said, let's just do the film festival route first and then see if there's a market for someone who wants to buy the film because we would have made ourselves a better deal. Right. They, they basically snuck into the edit room, saw the film, and, and took it off the market. And yeah. we were just so happy to sell it. That's all I cared about, which is totally fine. It was a right. wonderful thing, and they took a chance on us. But the first time it was in a theater was actually the Directors Guild Theater in Los Angeles because the L.A. Film Festival was the first festival it went into. I'll tell you the issue. The Wilco record had come out, and we really wanted the film to come out quickly because the film was a story that had so much to do with the release of that record and the news of how much turmoil they had trying to get it released. And there was so much part of the narrative that we wanted to piggyback on all the press that the record was getting. So rather than waiting for Sundance or anything like that, we finished cutting the film in April, and the um, film festival was in June, and it was the first one. So we just were like, They'll take it. Great. And we showed it in the Directors Guild Theater, which was 500 seats. Was, so what was that like? You're was, in there and it's being shown. Was it full? Like, it was full. And you're and, sitting in there just like hoping people are going to oh, react. it was wild. It was wild. So did that Wilco movie then end up opening a bunch of doors for you? Like, this guy's a director and, and here's my resume. I mean, I've done this thing. It did. It turned out that Wilco's biggest fans were all dudes that worked at advertising companies. <laughs> so I got a lot of commercials to direct. Is that right? And it w that was a great thing for me because I really learned a lot about being on set and directing and working with other departments on commercials. It certainly gave me sort of some cachet among creative people because I think that film really resonated with people who have also struggled creatively and w tried to make something original and I think that's a story that people in this business can really relate to. You know, it's it's been really fun getting to be your friend, getting to know you. And, and part of what's really interesting to me is our professional lives are so different. They're so different. And if I think of all my experiences hanging out with you and getting to meet interesting people or, you know, getting to be attached to your world, which, you know, it's kind of exciting for a guy from Seattle. I mean, you know, I, I'm not hanging around with George Clooney or Tom Cruise or Wilco <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you know, that's not my world. So it's it's really cool and it's exciting. And I think of you as this guy with all this confidence and like a clear vision of what you want to do. But I'd like to kind of go back and like, as you were growing up, like what shaped you to become that guy? I mean, were you that guy? Were you like the popular kid in school and like good at everything? And no, like, was, man, I'm going to achieve everything. I Here we the go. Opposite. That's the thing. When I look at you and I, 
we're so different. Our backgrounds are so different. I mean, you are this six foot seven guy who was pretty athletic and you probably were on a normal puberty schedule. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's not part of the show, but we, that, that's, that's a podcast for another day, my puberty schedule. That's your new podcast, my pu- Pete Nordstrom's puberty schedule. That, you know, people are going to love that one. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is that I, I think you were a fairly popular, well-liked guy. You were in a prominent family, and you kind of sailed through high school. I, I think you probably had a a car probably might have even been a Jeep without a top on it. I did. In high I had school. to buy it though. I mean, my parents didn't give it to me, but yes, I mean, I, yes, yeah, very I, different. Yeah. And you know, you say that our jobs are so different and, and it, it always is a little jarring after we spend a weekend, you know, if, if we're out doing some adventure or we go see a band or we, people should know that we used to have a record company together. Yeah. So we would get together and go see the artists that we were working with. And, and then come Monday morning, you know, I'd be staying at your guest bedroom and come Monday morning, you, you'd step out at eight o'clock in a suit. And I remember like, Oh yeah, this guy goes and like is the boss of about a thousand people. And it's funny when you look at how many points that we relate on, but how different our lives were. And to your point, my upbringing was totally opposite. I was um, the skinniest, smallest kid ever. I was probably the lightest, shortest kid that ever entered high school. I think Come on. I was, I was four, 11 and, four, 11 and 98 pounds in ninth grade for real, for real. And I, <laughs> And I entered high school with a broken leg. And on day one, I fell down the stairs. And so my reputation was cemented as a loser from day one. Like the poor kid on crutches who just took a tumble down the stairs. So like, what was your high school experience like, though? It was horrible. I was bullied. I, I hated school. I had a few friends, but I had a lot of kids give me a lot of shit over the years. And I've talked about this on off camera, but I I was put in trash cans. I mean, I was taped to a tree and taped to a chair at a school pep rally where their teachers were watching. Like I was publicly ostracized. And I think, I think the sad part is I grew up sort of in a home situation where I almost felt like I deserved it. Like this is just how the, the smart ass kid who's too small to defend himself gets treated and yeah. I had it coming or something. And I, I think that was my setting and it took me a long time to get over all that. But the thing that got me where I am now, or the few things are the things that I still love today that, that, you know, and we have those connections on, which are music and, and the fact that I was skateboarding. Yes. Yeah, so is that how you kind of found your tribe it, and your place? It was. was. And even more than my tribe, what I found is when I made stuff, then the ostracizing or the taunting or whatever had less power over me because I had something to look forward to. Yeah. Well, you know, at your movie premiere yesterday, you guys were doing that Q&A. One thing that really stood out to me is when someone was talking to Tony about skating and and he said something like defining success is doing something every day you wake up and you enjoy. That's something that I think is a very much a skater ethos, too, is that we'll figure out how to make things work. But right now, this is so fun and so fulfilling that we're going to do it. And Tony says it very well. He says, every morning I wake up, I love what I do. So I'm a success. has nothing to do with how much money I have in the bank and what my status is or whether I graduated from what college or whatever. And, you know, that's worked out for Tony. I think that if you love what you do and you truly go after it, all that other stuff kind of falls in line. All right. So you and I have had a chance to spend a lot of time together, even though we live in different places. And a lot of that's because my work has taken me to L.A. You know, quite often. And, you know, rather than staying in a hotel or something, I go to L.A., I've been able to stay at your house. And yeah. that's always been fun because you always got something interesting going on. Again, really different from, from my work. Like, But I remember once when I was in L.A. and you said, oh, I got to go run an errand. Will you, will you go with me? I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't know if we were, like, going to go out to dinner or something. It was, like, a, on a Saturday or go to get lunch or something. And I got to go re- – I got to return these shoes that I bought, got at Fred Siegel. And first I'm like, well, what the hell are you doing getting shoes at Fred Siegel? But okay. Yeah. So you got to return these shoes. So why don't you come with me? So I'd like you to pick up the story from there. Oh, it's a good story. And, and I should preface this by, <laughs> I always have found you being a public figure at Nordstrom, a good way for me to have a little fun at your expense. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah. I hadn't noticed that. But, but I'll tell you what happened is I got a pair of boots for Christmas and they were sort of like, they were a nice pair of boots. They were like kind of beetle boots, slip on, a little bit of a heel. and A Chelsea boot is a what Chelsea that's boot. To that's us. right, yes. a Chelsea boot. And I wore these things to dinner one night, and the whole time my heel is hurting. And it's like, 
what, is there a rock in my shoe? Then I get home and I realize a nail from the sole is sticking up <laughs> through the bottom of the shoe and has been going into so my heel. A poking you in the heel. Which is not acceptable for no. a shoe. No. So I find out that the shoes were from this fancy little boutique in Fred Siegel. Yeah, which if people don't know, Fred Siegel, it's, it's a very, you know, at the time, very popular, high famous end. store in Los Angeles. It's so. like Little Barney's. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and very high end and expensive. And so I went in this shop and I said, hey, I got these shoes for yeah. Christmas. And by the way, you're, you're with taking me, me with I you. T- I, this is my errand is I'm going to take Pete with me and return, <laughs> return some shoes. shoes. And I go in and I say, hey, the, these shoes, there's a nail sticking out. Could, do you guys repair your shoes? Well, we don't do that. We don't repair shoes. I go, okay, well, I'd like to return them because I can't walk around in a pair of boots that is making my heel bleed. <laughs> and, and I think at this point you're getting sort of amused yeah. because, like, oh, because no. I'm, I'm trying to use logic. I've been on the receiving end of this yes. return before, I think. So the guy says, well, where's your receipt? I said, it was a gift and I don't have a receipt. And immediately he said, well, we don't take anything back. And I said, well, how, what about an exchange? Oh, no, we're, we're not going to exchange those. And I said, well, wait a minute. It's a brand new pair of shoes I wore them once and there's a... There's a nail in them. You've got to make this right. And I, I got a little, a little more indignant. And at this point, I think you were kind of... Now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, I remember this. Because nothing like feeling like you've been wronged by, by a retail experience. And I, I don't like that. So the guy's you know, trying to tell me in three different ways that he's just not going to take him back. And finally, he leans over to me and he says, you know what you do? Take him to Nordstrom. They'll take back anything. At which point, I'm like, my ears kind of perk up like, huh. And then you went with it. I did. I said, well, (laughs) tell me more about this policy. Why why would Nordstrom take a pair of shoes back that they didn't sell me? Well, I think to be clear, you said, what store would do something like that? Like, who would run... Who would run a store like that and make up a policy like that? That's right. I think I think I was saying yes. something like, who You're would be crazy on. enough to run a business yes, like that's that? Right. And he, you're standing here, <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, but we send people there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I still am not saying anything. And you're like, no, you're leaning into it now. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, so you mean to tell me that I can waltz right into Nordstrom and give them these shoes? I said, what if they don't have this brand? He goes, I think they'll take them anyway. And I said, well, this is just, this is, fa- thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's public service. And we walk out of the store. And my first question to you, if I recall correctly, was, You're, you got to shut this down, right? Like, this is bad news. <laughs> and you, I remember what you said to me. You said, no, this is great. Here's a guy who had you as a customer in his store, ready to, with a good experience, make you a customer for life. And you know what he did? He sent you to our store. And yeah, we may eat a pair of shoes or we may even fix them for you. But by the time that happens for you, you're probably going to be more likely to go to Nordstrom the next time you want to buy a pair of shoes. Yeah, because that's, that's actually really true. I mean, most of the goodwill that we've created with customers that creates a, a connection is when we solve some kind of problem for them. And it's oftentimes something like a return. So yeah, I mean, you know, in the moment, that may not make total sense, but in the lifetime value of a customer and the relationship and the connection, you're right. So I I don't remember exactly saying that, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, this stuff kind of has happened all the time. I've seen examples of this. And yeah, we look at it as what a great opportunity. Someone's going to send a customer to the store and, and not only that, just take care send of a customer to the store and also saying Nordstrom has the best customer service policy of all. That really made an impression on me. And your reaction made an impression on me. Like, forget the whole culture of retail. <laughs> forget trying to embarrass me at some store. Yeah, you, it, it was funny because <laughs> I was trying to embarrass you and then I ended up walking away really impressed. And I, I think you told me that the next time you did a state of your company thing, you told that story. And That's a good one. I hadn't thought about that one in a while. I may have to tell that story. Again. It's a, that's good, a good, one. good one. Well, listen, I know the, the tire story is very famous. I feel like that's you know getting a little old now. <laughs> the treads are wearing thin, so to speak. And I, I would like the Chelsea boot story too. Yep. Okay. To, Get into the lexicon of Nordstrom uh, lore, if, if you can make that happen for me. <laughs> so, you know, working on this podcast, one of the things I've done that people wouldn't know from listening to it is that, Sam, you've actually helped advise me on this because part of the off-camera show was not just this thing that was on DirecTV, but it was a podcast, too. And so you've done a couple hundred podcasts, yes, right? Yes. So when, I, when we first started talking about doing this at Nordstrom, it was like, I don't know anything about this. i got to ask someone that I trust, that I know – that has some experience with. And so I, you know, I, I contacted you and you've been nice to advise, kind of consult us through this. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you doing that. It's been fun to talk to you in this format. 
although it's a little awkward to be interviewing a guy that does interviews for a living or has done this before. So you've been very patient and nice with me. It's been fun to be able to work on something with you. Well, I appreciate it. And you hit my wheelhouse, which is here's a new challenge. And I knew it was going to work out because you are a natural interviewer and your curiosity is infectious and it is natural. And what you do is so different than me. And it's kind of fun to see you finding your way in this, which is a little more similar to what I do. All right. Well, hey, look, congratulations again on the movie coming out April 5th at HBO. Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off, is really fascinating. It's compelling. Oh, thanks for coming all the way to Austin to see it. Yeah, it's fun. Well, all right, so no. That was good. Any other thing you want to riff on here? Should I put my shirt back on? So here it is, it's, it's what, 7.30 in the morning here on a Monday in Austin, Texas. And I'm, um, I'm here at our store at Barton Creek to do what we call a state of the company meeting. We do these every year. We go visit all our different buildings, stores, facilities, and talk a little bit about last year and what our goals are for this year. So I've done, I don't know, hundreds of these over the years, uh, but I haven't done one in person in, in a couple years because of COVID, so this will be kind of exciting. So here we go. Good morning. Good morning, Pete. How you doing? I'm excited to be here. All right, all right, all right. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? All right. Wow, it looks so good to see everybody. All right, before we really get started, what's our number one goal? Improve service, right? We gotta improve service. All right. So with that, I would like to introduce Pete Nordstrom, our president of our company. We're super excited to have you, Pete. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. So I'm curious, like, what's our number one goal this year? I gotta say, when Julie pulled that out, I was like, I don't know, what she means, customer service. There's like all this whispering back there. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. If you're ever in any kind of meeting and someone asks you that question, just belt that one out. That's gonna be the right answer, every time. I know that it seems kind of obvious, but really the trick in that and the beauty of it is no one's telling you how to do it, right? You guys take that spirit of intent and then you work to do what you can to help customers, right? In all authentic ways, that are kind of appropriate in the moment for you. I think we could all agree everything in the last couple of years has been difficult and complicated. Uh, I want to make sure you guys understand that we recognize this, this isn't easy, okay? And that you guys really define what Nordstrom is, particularly us in Seattle. No one knows who we are. I mean, they know who you guys are. I, I just, I can't tell you from my perspective how powerful that is. I've been doing this a long time. And I saw it, you know, when my dad and his cousins were doing these meetings. I was sitting there like you guys going, oh, yeah, okay, well, customer service. But it really, it really works. But I get this stuff all the time. I check into a hotel or give my name anywhere. I'm, I'm not a famous person, but I have a famous name. And when I give my name, then it's on. And it's almost always great where someone's talking about they know someone that works at Nordstrom and how it's, it's really a good experience and how much they love the store. So that... I just want to tell you from my point of view how much I appreciate that and how great it makes me feel. So with that, I'd like to talk about anything you want to talk about. I can wait it out too. Yeah. Hi, uh, I was just wondering, how has the supply chain affected Nordstrom? Okay. Listen, I've been doing this a long time. I don't know that I spent two hours on supply chain issues in the first 30 seven years I worked here. In the last two or three, I, I spend two or three hours a day. I mean, if you think about it, particularly since the online part is such a big deal what we do, it facilitates and enables everything we do. That becomes the touch point, is getting the product to customers in a way that they expect. And that bar, frankly, got set by Amazon, right? I mean, think about this. You guys are young, but if you go back years and years in, and you had to buy something like in a catalog or through the mail, You'd set a check in, and then maybe in three or four weeks, something would show up. 
maybe. And that was a good experience. Now, someone goes online and they buy something, if it's not there like in the next day or two, they are ticked, they're mad, and then they come in and take it out of you guys. So I, mean, I guess, again, the point is supply chain is a literal strategic part of what we're doing. If we're gonna make customers feel good and look their best, we've gotta be good at this. Oh, here we go. Now I want to get you guys the microphone. <laughs> Hi. My Hi. name is Lauren. I have had a couple of different roles here at Nordstrom, but I am currently in visual merchandising. And going forward with more virtual selling, more virtual meetings, what do you foresee as far as corporate level jobs having more than one home office in Seattle or being able to work remotely? You'd love Seattle. It's great. It's a little gloomy. It's a little gloomy. We it's love cold. sunshine here. I tell you, I got off the plane a couple of days ago. It was 28. <laughs> that was that was shocking to me. Not from Seattle. Um, we get asked that question a lot of time about roles uh, for you guys to be able to advance kind of where you are without having to move around, and that's more and more likely than it's ever been. You know, now that we've learned that people can work for certain jobs remotely really effectively, then that opens up the opportunity for more of those things. I, I guess all I would say is you should be engaged with the people that you work with in your division to talk about what those opportunities might be. And if you have suggestions, you know, take some initiative and talk about what could work. I mean, why not? I mean, why wouldn't we listen to that? Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm with the women's core team here. I'm just curious what you all see as Austin's greatest challenge and what's the corporate strategy to help us? I think our biggest challenge is for the people that buy and allocate inventory to do a better job of doing that here. And I say that as a person, that that is actually my job. So I'm a little self-critical of the buying and allocation of inventory. You know, you guys have the customers here. You've got good locations. When I go back to Seattle, it's a little bit of my takeaway. I think we can be doing better in Austin, and we've got to enable them to do it. I knew you guys would like that one. That's, I mean it though, I, I, I mean it sincerely. Yes. Hi Pete, my name is Wendy. Um, back in 2016, when you were here, um, a bunch of us went to see your band play, um, and we were fangirls and fanboys. Um, you are famous. You are, you are famous. Uh, no, yeah, keep going though. I like this line of questioning, this is good. Um, and I just wanted to know what's going on with the band. With the band? Yeah. All right. I still have the band. Band's doing great. It'd be fun if we were playing down here. It didn't really work out this year for us to do that. People like me and the other guys, band, they have jobs. We gotta do our jobs. So anyway, thanks for asking about that. That's good. Hi, Pete. Hi. I have two questions and I know you're gonna be able to answer. Um, <laughs> like what what's going play? on with my band or something? Yeah, what do you yeah. play in your band and what kind of music is it? You're a bass player. That's right? me right there. Okay. And what kind of music is it? It's fantastic music. <laughs> It's a rock band, I don't know. It's a dad band, I don't know. It's not. We, we did this live radio thing a couple years ago, and the comment, I love looking at the comments, it's like, these guys are really good, but they look like a bunch of guys whose wives said, okay, you can be in a band. <laughs> or like, they've got sensible haircuts, I bet they have really good credit. I mean, just like on and on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're good, but they're old. We have, we have time for one more. Hi, my name's Emily, I'm the area HR manager, and we've been talking a lot about disciplines, and if you were a department manager today, what's one discipline that you would, what's the word I'm looking for, activate each day? I would talk to everybody in my crew individually at a certain point, ask how they're doing, and ask what I can do to help them do their job better. <laughs> you learn these things. I did that job a lot. I was a department manager. The key to success for any department manager is having a great crew. That is the entire thing. I don't care how great you are at selling stuff. If you don't have a great crew, it ain't gonna work. So invest energy in having great people and supporting them any way you can. That's my advice. But I just wanna again thank everyone for being here. I wanna thank you for everything you've done the last couple of years, you know, slugging it out. I talked about firefighting, we've done a lot of that, but we're gonna shift into a different phase. We're gonna have more intentionality about what's gonna take to really do a great job in this market. If you're asking me what our biggest opportunity in Seattle is to do a better job of enabling you guys to do your thing. I'm going to be around all day, so I look forward to meeting all of you when I'm around. So thanks so much. What is our number one goal? Improve service. All right, we're going to improve service starting today. All right, you guys, thank you so much for getting up this morning. We appreciate you all. You look fabulous. Let's have a great day. Let's give Pete a round of applause. Thank you, thank you.
Pete's my band. Yeah. And this is Pete's band. Yeah. Well, that's the show. Remember to head over to HBO to check out Sam Jones' latest documentary, Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcasts where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. And don't forget to leave your number because I might just be giving you a call back. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Hollywood actor and co-founder of The Honest Company, Jessica Alba. When I was pregnant with my first daughter, I had an allergic reaction to a laundry detergent that is marketed to parents for babies. And I looked up the ingredients and then I did research. And a lot of these ingredients are linked to many different issues. And I was like, what are we exposing ourselves to that we don't even know? Jessica entered our collective consciousness through massively successful blockbuster films and television series. But in the last decade, we've gotten to see a whole new side of Earth through an inspiring business model that challenges the way people think about the kinds of products that we allow in our homes. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. <laughs>